You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests and not those of the uh, those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. It's Thursday, March 9th, 2017, and in this week's show, we'll be discussing uh, three films that are currently playing or about to open at Film Scene. Our lineup includes The Bad Kids, which plays at Film Scene Tuesday, March 21st at 6 p.m. as part of Bijou Film Forum. Next, we'll be discussing I Am Not Your Negro, which is currently playing at Film Scene and will continue to play throughout the weekend and all next week. Finally, we'll be discussing Julieta, which opens at Film Scene tomorrow and will also continue to play throughout the weekend and all next week. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. We have Spencer Williams, a cinema major at the University of Iowa. Welcome, Spencer. Hi. And we have Changmin Yu, a film studies grad student at Iowa. Welcome, Changmin. Happy to be here. And I'm Leah Vonderheide, also a film studies grad student. Let's start with our first film, The Bad Kids. Changmin, perhaps you can share your thoughts before we begin. Sure. The Bad Kids traces the lives of socially vulnerable high school students through their struggles and achievements on the, on the path of acquiring a high school diploma. This film, for the most part, is a heartbreaking journey. Students haunted by issues like sexual assault, drug use, and familial instability have to count their credits one by one till the day they graduate. Many of the students come to enumerate the social and familial problems they face in interviews and voiceovers, and the documentary leads the audience to follow three of them closely. Lee Bridges, who has a young son with a fellow classmate and is facing the challenge of supporting his family. Jennifer Caulfield, who lacks family support for his, uh, her scho- scholastic efforts. And Joey McGee, who grapples with drug use and instability at home. Furthermore, the audience doesn't just see the students' daily routine from their perspective. We are also given a privileged view into how staff at Black Rock Continuation High School and its principal, Vonda Villain, deal with this dire situation. Black Rock serves as the last safety net for these at-risk students before they are forever lost in a system that ignores them and sucked into the vicious cycle of relying on social welfare. More specifically, the problems the students have not only pose obstacles to their learning, but also take a toll on the emotional well-being of the teachers. This is mostly conveyed through the regular meetings of teachers and staff in which they share the information of each student's learning progress and the pressure both students and teachers have to handle. At the center of this storm is the principal, Vonda. I like how straightforward and powerful this film is. My fellow banterers, how do you like this film? Um, I liked it. I, like, I don't know. I feel, I've, I'm, like, on a documentary burnout <laughs> after having been a true false, so I don't know. Um, I don't know. I think there's, I think it's an interesting sort of, I, the whole time, first of all, I was just, like, wondering where, like, like, the school itself seems so isolated from all of the students that, like, go to it and from just like a geographical point of view where like I don't know like the town itself seems to be like dispersed like just like across this entirely vast landscape and like where no one really seems to have a neighbor and there's like some there's already sort of like a divide there um and I don't know I just I thought that um the sort of the sort of framing the film around sort of the principle sort of left me feeling sort of like, I don't know, I wanted, like, I wanted it to be more centered around the kids in a way. And, like, I understand sort of the importance of centering it around a person who essentially runs the show, basically, and sort of has to deal with the ins and outs and the fallouts of all of these, like, students and all of their individual issues. But I feel like I would have liked to have spend, spent... I guess, more time with the kids, with their families. And I also thought that 
in the like at the end of the film, I kind of wanted there to be like one of those like cheesy of like where are they now kind of <laughs> situations just for like I don't know. I felt like that would have been appropriate. I don't know. I just I'm going back and forth on sort of like how I feel about the framing of some of the kids too, and like sort of opposed to some of the other ones that are like whose struggles are getting privileged over others and sort of like how certain students are framed over others whose like family life do we get to know more than other kids family life and sort of like family members as well sort of go come in and out of this film a little bit but usually we only really get to see one kid's family up close um so there's just I don't know I wish there was a it could have it could have been almost longer. I feel and, and sort of like just to parse out all of these other things that are going on because it is an interesting subject. I um, so I agree that just coming off of True False, where we watched many many documentaries, there was a, I wasn't necessarily burned out on documentaries, but my perspective on them was a little out of whack because I definitely thought at the end of it, that somehow the director was going to magically appear in my living room and explain (laughs) to me, like, how they came to know these students and et cetera, et cetera, because we had just been inundated with all these, like, really cathartic Q&As after seeing so many documentaries this weekend. But um, I do, I'm going to disagree with the idea that it should have focused more on the kids and less on the principal, because I think that this film is essentially saying there are kids all over the country presumably all over the world, but all over the country that are put in these really awful circumstances that have nothing to do with anything they've done in their lives or choices that they've made in their lives, um, that so much of what they're experiencing is circumstantial. And so there's always going to be students like that that um, fall through the cracks of a, a of a system because of their situation with poverty or abuse. Um, and the bigger question then is what are the rest of us going to do about it? And I think the film is maybe a little bit more interested in this school, this principal, this group of teachers, and how they are confronting a reality that is with all of us, but most of us don't have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And I think that that was a smart um, move in terms of um, the, the, the way that the documentary unfolded but I was definitely um dying for more information about how did this school come to be like how did this documentary come to be made like is there there's almost a suggestion that the school might not um continue forever like I got the impression that they were kind of making a plea to the school board at one point um for the school's importance and that made me think like maybe there's questions of funding etc um so I was interested in all those things and we don't really get that this this is a little bit of a verite um, document. So, okay. In general, how do you see the role that Principal Vonda plays in a school and in this film? Do you think the various silent sequences in which we observe her daily routine are effective? Because I'm sort of um, not sure about uh, the message I mean, the directors uh, wanted to convey there. Like, why do we need those uh, eerie sequences in which, uh, for example, we see her run, like, in the morning, and we see her contemplate on the things in front of her? I don't know. She doesn't just run, she jump ropes. And there was something <laughs> yeah. about that that seemed, like, very specific to Principal Vonda, the idea that this, this woman gets up at 4.30 in the morning to start jump roping. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I feel like she's essentially sort of, like, the eye of the hurricane amidst, like, all of these, all of these like, issues and, like, term, constant turmoil. And, like, the school itself seems to be... I also had a question, sort of, like, the, I guess, the points that the students get for assignments, I was curious to sort of know more about how that system worked because I wasn't even, like, towards the end, I was still trying to figure out how that system, I guess, (laughs) works. Like, is it just, like, on an assignment basis? I don't know. There's, like, something weird there. But I think in sort of the moments where it's just her and it's sort of no one's talking and we just see her go about her business, I don't know. I think that... I don't think that she's necessarily... I feel like everyone in this film is sort of like... <laughs> needs to 
be humanized in like a way that isn't exploitative, but I'm not so sure that she's the most important one to do that with. I don't, I don't know. I'm still going back and forth in my head, but I feel like there were moments where I was like, okay, let's like get back to sort of, I don't, I don't need some of this. <laughs> well, and I don't know that the film was trying to do this, but it created an interesting tension nonetheless between her as this really tenacious individual who's making all of this happen, it seems. And then the question of the sustainability of this school itself, which, you know, I want nothing more than there to be a place where students can have another chance at getting their diploma. And this seemed like a really incredible place full of lots of resources and support for these students to get that um, second or third or fourth or fifth chance. Um, And yet, even with that, I found myself not skeptical, but just sort of wondering like if Vonda's not there there aren't many women like her since we do see so much of her can a system like this work or is it like really kind of on her shoulders I think the phantom of sustainability is always hovering above the film like as if I mean because like the the school itself is built on all those like emotional efforts staff and teachers put in so like uh, you can say that the continuation of the school uh, is based on uh, some sort of suffering of all these staff members and teachers. So, like in one sense, like we are see we are seeing how uh, the system falls apart, like gradually, just bit by bit. Like you get that kind of feeling throughout the film, right? Like you you get a sense that they are not getting stronger but weaker. Like, as time goes by. Right, and they seem like a group of people who actually have a, a as decent a handle as one could have on their boundaries. Right. <laughs> and yet, it's still really chipping away at them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, like, both admired that about them, their willingness to be there, and then it made me nervous about, wow, if this system fell apart, then, like, what other alternatives or options do we have to help children in need? All right, so this documentary veers away from a microscopic uh, point of view, and I would say also a statistical point of view. In other words, we are not seeing things and problems from a general point of view, but from a personal and emotional perspective. Do you think this strategy of close identification would prod the audience to think more? I think so. Um, I don't know. I think there's something to be said. I mean there are only like a handful of kids that are being focused on. And so I don't know, you really get to see sort of the down, I guess like the really down moments that they all have sort of like in their efforts to sort of graduate from this school. Um, and that's sort of your empathy is kind of like, I don't know, you, have, you there's some kind of almost bond that you as like a viewer are forming with these kids, even though that's not actually like, happening like in person it feels like you know so intimately about their lives that you like can't help but care for them or like to want to help in some way um even if you're not like physically there to do it yeah I mean and I suppose there's nothing wrong with provoking the viewer to then to see the movie and then go seek out information afterwards I mean We've come a long way since documentaries like Housing Problems where a viewer was only going to get their information from the film and so you had to tell them everything um, within the movie. Like now we can watch a movie and then immediately Google a bunch of information and find out the answers to our questions. Um, And maybe that's a more useful discourse between documentary and spectator for certain subjects at this point. I don't know. All right. So uh, I think we talked about this uh, a, li- a little bit uh, in previous discussions, but I do like how the film does not try to resolve the plot line with each student, Lee, Jennifer, and Joey. It gives you a grave sense of loss, but also a sense of opening. So do you like this kind of open-ended strategy in, I don't know, documentary? Um, I think for this film, I had, I don't know, I kind of wish that, each sort of individual case was given it's like I guess equal amount of like running time or something I feel like there are definitely stories 
for instance, like, um, I think it was Jennifer who, like, goes through the system and, and comes out triumphant, it seems. And that's sort of, like, the, um, the evidence that, like, what the school is doing seems to be working in some way. Um, and so there's, like a, like, a harder focus on sort of her struggles. And we get to know a lot about what happened to her in the past and sort of her struggles growing up and then entering the school and then sort of the struggles of, like, completing all of the necessary, um, I guess, points she needs to graduate. And so there's, like, a very heavy emphasis on her, and she does succeed. And then there are other students, like Joey, um, who, I mean, we really don't know how that's going to turn out. I mean, it seems pretty hopeless. And, like, from the halfway point of the film you're kind of just you have a sense that it's not going to be the same kind of narrative that jennifer sort of goes through or like like arc that jennifer i guess goes through and so it kind of it feels like once it becomes very clear that there's not going to be kind of that same happy ending it kind of just drops it entirely it seems at least for me it seemed that way so i don't know um yeah, I liked that, I mean, everything didn't get tied up in a bow. I mean, that would have felt pretty false, right, yeah. <laughs> um, given the circumstances. And, uh, you know, I think I'm going to take back or walk back a little bit of what I just said previously about maybe it's fine that they don't give us that much information. Because I'm realizing that this film reminded me of The Listeners, which was the documentary we watched about crisis service hotlines. And that movie did a nice job of kind of alternating between personal stories, but also giving the viewer a sense of this one center and how it works and then how kind of crisis hotline works, hotlines work across the U.S. and how that kind of emergency care works and is underfunded. And it just gave you a little bit more to hold on to in terms of if you wanted to be active in response to the film, how you might do that. This film maybe needed just like one interview with someone above Principal Vonda, maybe, um, in addition to all the stuff with the kids and their kind of ups and downs. And I, I still, again, like, I, I appreciate and think it, there was, there's no other choice other than the unresolved ending with the kids. But maybe just one other person in the school system who could maybe have explained where this school fits in, how many schools like this there are in the U.S., and, like, why this kind of emergency approach is happening to kids in their education at the secondary level, um, which seems like a pretty fundamental part of our society. Like students should be able to complete their high school degree. Um, so I'm disagreeing with myself now. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. I think we're going to wrap up there. Uh, the bad kids plays at film scene Tuesday, March 21st. So that's the Tuesday after spring break. It's at 6 PM as part of Bijou Film Forum. For more information on Bijou Film Forum, check out bijou.uiowa.edu. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss I Am Not Your Negro. Stress and anxiety are the top two health-related impediments to learning. Everyone experiences stress and anxiety at some point in their college career. Keeping irregular hours, pulling all-nighters, eating junk food, and relying on ineffective learning strategies add to this college-related stress. Paying bills, being self-conscious, or becoming nervous before a test are expected life events that cause stress. Avoiding social situations, excessive worry, and an irrational fear or avoidance of something that poses little threat of danger is not something you should have to deal with on your own. When stress is unmanaged, one may begin to lack interest or ability to concentrate, feel tense, fatigued, or depressed. About 56% of college students experience these feelings and have anxiety. The University of Iowa Student Health Services can help you with this stress and anxiety. They offer services such as individual counseling and stress management consultations free to UI students. For immediate assistance, you can call the crisis hotline at 319-351-0140. This message was brought to you by the students at the University of Iowa College of Nursing. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. With I Am Not Your Negro, documentary director Raoul Peck celebrates James Baldwin's rich legacy by immersing viewers in his always prescient and ever impactful words, voiced by Samuel L. Jackson. 
The film is built around a letter Baldwin once wrote to his publisher, pitching a book on his fallen friends and civil rights leaders, Medgar Evans, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr. For Baldwin, the proposed book, which was never actually published, is not, is not just the story of these three men. Rather, it is a history of racism in America, which is to say, it is American history, a history, as is made clear in this film, that was never not racist. Many film critics have pointed out that Baldwin's words seem more relevant today than ever before in the current cycle of high-profile police brutality against Black men, women, and children, the Black Lives Matter movement, the presidency and legacy of Barack Obama, and ultimately the resurgence of white nationalism across America. A.O. Scott writes, quote, Baldwin understood the deep, contradictory patterns of our history and articulated with a passion and clarity that few others have matched the psychological dimensions of racial conflict, the suppression of black humanity under slavery and Jim Crow, and the insistence on it in African-American politics and art, the dialectic of guilt and rage, forgiveness and denial that distorts relations between black and white citizens in the North as well as the South, and the lengths that white people will go to wash themselves clean of their complicity in oppression, end quote. In a sense, both Baldwin's writing and Peck's film are therefore not merely about history, but about the very nature of American identity. Shangyin Spencer, were you familiar with Baldwin and his work before you saw this film? And will you be seeking out more of his work since seeing it? Um, I mean, I've heard of Baldwin but I, prior to this film, but I hadn't read any of his um, stuff. So this was, I guess, my introduction, I guess, to his writing. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely want to read more of his work since watching the film. I thought there were, there was a lot of potent sort of, and he's just like a, like, just like, I love that the film puts his words directly onto the screen too. Um, and like just the way that it's written is so beautiful and poetic and just like biting at the same time. And like his voice is like so soothing and beautiful as well. And so I don't, I, I really loved it. Yeah. I never studied American history seriously. So, like, uh, uh, the only important civil rights leader that I know of uh, was, um, I would say, uh, Martin Luther King. But also, I don't know why, when people like uh, putting Martin Luther King and Malcolm X together, they usually like downplay the, the role Malcolm X played in the civil rights movement because I think of the tactics he promoted, right? So like in that sense, like uh, you, you get like the presence of Malcolm X in, in these narratives, but like you, you, you never see like that kind of narrative fully fleshed out. Like, e- even I, in this film you felt like that was yeah, happening? Yeah, I think like uh, in that sense, like I think the film is trying to give you a sense that, okay, Malcolm X was not never that far away from Martin Luther King, right? Because like the film talked talked about how uh, at the end, like they sort of converge, right? Uh, their their thinking and sort of their their ideology and their strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I think there's something radically different about Mac- Malcolm X, at least from my understanding. So like I think the film is trying to give like a unified voice to these civil rights leaders rather than like so, sort of dividing through like different, I don't know, um, trends and influences. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the reason why Martin Luther King is the leader that we herald in the mainstream and gave a day to um, on the calendar is because he's the more comfortable leader for white people in America because of his <laughs> legacy of nonviolence. I mean, there's almost like no other way around around that, right? And Baldwin was really good at uh, um, pointing out that both um, leaders, both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, were really valid in the way that they were arguing because of the validity and what they were (laughs) fighting against. Um, And so uh, it is a shame. I know from sitting or from seeing this film at the True False uh, Film Festival that um, where the producer was there, um, I think his name is uh, Hebert Peck, and he he is hoping, he and and the director are hoping that this 
that because Baldwin has kind of fallen out of curriculum um, in the U.S., that this will maybe be a first step to um, bringing his works back um, into the curriculum. And really, when he speaks, I mean, I think that his language resonates with the kind of language we've been hearing over the last couple of years that from Black Lives Matter. Uh, it feels almost familiar, even though we haven't been hearing from him um, or reading him as much as maybe we should have been. Um, and I'll also say he, the producer tried to explain the story of like where this letter came from, um, which was a librarian going through Baldwin's um, old belongings um, to get them ready for a new unnamed library that is very interested in having the Baldwin works, which I can only mm-hmm. imagine is going to be the Obama library whenever that opens, but he didn't, he wouldn't tell us. <laughs> um, so let's see here. Uh, Baldwin, though often grim when speaking of both history and current events, claims that he simply cannot be a pessimist. Does the film also take this position? Um, is it a hopeful film or is it ambiguous about the future? What were the lasting impressions you had? I felt it was... I feel like it's hard not to be ambiguous about the future, especially given sort of the political climate of today. It seems almost naive to make a statement of, oh, yeah, it's going to be fine when it's for so long it has. I mean, even from just like the beginning of America, it's like it hasn't been fine. Um, And so it feels almost irresponsible to make that claim, which I don't think the film does. Um... And, like, I mean, and it's also hard to just not want things to be better, too. So in that sense, I do think the film um, is sort of in the same way that Baldwin is, like, he can't can't afford to be pessimistic about it either because then work ultimately doesn't get done or there doesn't seem to be a point to it and then it doesn't get done. And so I think it's sort of open-ended and that we're hopeful things are going to get better, but we're not so naive to think that it's going to turn on a dime or it's going to be anytime soon. Again, I think um, pessimism doesn't seem to be uh, the message of this film, right? Because I think the more, I know, appropriate description of the sentiment might be righteous indignation. Like, <laughs> how how are you go- going to transform that kind of emotional energy into actions and mm-hmm. how those actions uh, can be replicated throughout the country? So, uh, in that sense, I think any kind of um, socially-minded film has to be not pessimistic at least in some aspect right like it cannot be pessimistic throughout otherwise like okay people are going to be just like oh anything we do is not going to change the status quo right so i think uh in that sense i i think the film uh works on a very um fine balance between um looking back uh, toward the past and looking forward uh, in seeing the revel- in the relevance between um, the past and future, but also how that peril is going to teach you something. Yeah. Um, so this year's uh, Oscar winner for Best Documentary, up against I Am Not Your Negro, was OJ Made in America, uh, and it embarks on a similar project as this film, which is articulating black history and identity as American history and identity. But the ESPN documentary took almost eight hours to tell its story, whereas I Am Not Your Negro took only a cool 95 minutes. So how do we feel about the radically um, different running times, at least, of these two competing documentaries? I have, I have not seen the, um, the OJ Made in America yet. It is, oh, you have It is in my queue. I just, like, I haven't had the sense to, like... You haven't had eight hours to spare. I haven't spare. had eight hours to spare. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, it's spring break, so I will definitely have eight hours to spare um, in the coming days. But I think that um, I can't, I guess, speak on sort of whether or not OJ is sort of utilized eight hours, like, in, like, a brilliant way or not because I haven't seen it um but I think the running time for I'm not your negro I don't know I think um I think it did it was very concise I think I mean and it's only I mean it's rough it's source material is also very concise I think that um it 
comes in, it says what it needs to say, and it gives you the information that needs to be given, and then it's and then it's up to you to sort of fill in the blank and do that. I guess necessary work on like your own time. It's not going to like feed you every single thing and like absolve you of any sort of responsibility of sort of like learning about the histories of America and sort of the oppression of African-Americans in American society and things like that. So I think it's, it's an appropriate running time um, for this particular, I mean, just from the source material itself and just like what this film is trying to accomplish. I mean, OJ was very well made, but like at times it feels very much like a TV series, right? Because Almost like it was a TV series. It is a TV series, right? Yeah, it was like, very addicting. It had very, like cliffhanger endings. Yeah, so you, you sort of like, uh, like I, I don't think like every American remembers every detail in the case of OJ very well. So it's like, oh, I remember that. And like it is a very well-written uh uh, documentary so like you see how structured the entire series is so like you are sort of relieving uh, with the case and how that particular moment shaped uh, Americans point of view toward racism right because like OJ is the, this funny figure that okay if we like OJ we are not racist that kind of logic is going on throughout the entire series so, uh, in that sense, I think um, OJ was much more immersive. Like, uh, it wants you to go back uh, into the history and find out, okay, what OJ phenomena represent in the 1970s and the 80s and through the 90s, right? <laughs> um, uh, I think this, um, I'm not a Negro on the other hand, doesn't want to give you that kind of immersive experience because it at times it feels like uh, more poetic, right? Mm-hmm. It is uh, concentrated on all those um, memories that Baldwin had with his intimate friends and how he, their personal lives are intertwined with the history of America. So um, in that sense, I mean... I, I like shorter films, but uh, I would say like the film did a very successful job in giving you that much information uh, in 90 minutes and how um, each segment in the film can uh, serve as sort of comparison to our contemporary situation because the, uh, the one segment I remember very well is uh, the debate between Baldwin and a Yale Sterling professor. Right. Right. Which that is was... just this like cringing moment, but then also a kind of triumphant moment yeah. in a sense. But like, I think that uh, summarizes like the general uh, sentiment of, uh, I would say, white liberalism. Like, you, like, like, there's this contradiction here. On the one hand, because uh, all white educated people are very much familiar with some sort of well, or one version of continental thought like okay people uh should be able to uh determine their fates right like that's very heideggerian but like they should like like uh use their will in order to change the course of history and like everything is about individual choices and Bowen would give you an entirely different version of that. Like if uh, for I would say like in, at least in his debate, he doesn't think that there is something called free will if we don't consider all these social and political and cultural constraints. So like I do, I mean, and you see that kind of debate being replicated in contemporary times, like how people still believe that, okay, uh, it is about individual will and the choices you make. Like, Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, it's continental thought, but it's also the, the absolute bedrock of American ideology of individualism. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. We are, um, really prone to that thinking and that the Yale professor, um, he's going so far as to, 
um, I mean, he just kind of does the thing that I think all white men do when confronted with issues of race, which is try to make it an issue of class. And um, I'm sure if it was like a white woman, she would have made it an issue of second wave feminism, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> like we fall into these really um, uh, useless and sometimes extremely harmful repetitions of history. And Baldwin just, he recognizes that so easily and he articulates that so well that I think that's what is so amazing about this film. Um, it, it does feel like, um, a film about Baldwin, of course, is going to be a 90 minute poetic, not poetic documentary, but a, you know, documentary that really feels poetic. And, um, yeah, something about OJ Simpson is going to feel kind of tawdry and dirty because it's about pop culture and our obsession with it. And, um, that's not going to feel as eloquent (laughs) or like too eloquent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. Do we have time for one more thought about this movie? So in her Oscar acceptance speech this year, uh, Viola Davis said, quote, people ask me all the time, what kind of stories do you want to tell Viola? And I say, exhume those bodies, exhume those stories, the stories of the people who dreamed, uh, end quote. Is the project of I Am Not Your Negro to exhume, as Davis says, the stories of the people who dreamed? I would say so. Um, I mean, it was, I think that, I mean, I guess for me, just like as a viewer who's unfamiliar with the work of James Baldwin, I mean, it definitely, I guess, exhumed or like dug up um, sort of like a person and sort of a person's attachment to history, um, like a person that I had no knowledge of prior. And so for that is like, I'm now privy to a perspective that I was not privy to before. Or that I wasn't, um, I guess so. I I was I hadn't. I guess it was always available to me, but it never sort of like came into my life. And in this sense, um, now that it has, it's sort of the story has sort of been exhumed for me. And then within the film itself too, there are sort of a lot of things about race that Baldwin brings up that I haven't really thought about which is sort of like a privilege of my own that I don't necessarily have to or have had to confront that um before until so in that sense it's sort of like those thoughts are also (laughs) exhumed for me as a viewer and now I'm wary of them and now I'm thinking about them and so I think so yeah when listening to uh Viola Davis' speech at one moment I was really scared because like like because she mentioned where all the great people go, right? Like, I was like, don't say Hollywood. Don't say Hollywood. And she, <laughs> she said graveyard. I was like, oh, God. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so <laughs> I, I would say so. But, like, I appreciate this film not being a hagiography, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's important because uh, when you are talking about exhuming stories and bodies, you are doing some work to... Uh, redistribute uh, people's attention toward uh, the configuration of the states of affairs, for example, right? So, like, you want people to pay attention to different themes. So, by moving away from, like, hagiography, we can properly uh, look at how people live their lives and how um, their personal lives are informed by their... I was not political agendas, but like um, political commitments, right? Uh, so I do appreciate that. So I think like in, in that sense, uh, I would say like the true embodiment or realization of Ella Davis' dream would be to talk about all those unknown um, African-Americans who sacrificed them, themselves in order or like to in order to achieve like a bigger dream or something like that. Not in the way of the birth of a nation, but something similar like that, I would say. You're talking about the Nate, uh, Nate Parker, Parker Nat Turner. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess in the most literal sense, the dreamer that we always think of is MLK. And of course he's exhumed here again, but he's not someone that has necessarily left our consciousness. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think there's something really effective about this film in making it 
in making us feel just the tiniest bit foolish for having had any distance from a figure like Baldwin um, or any distance from the way in which Malcolm X and MLK work together, right? Like it makes us realize that it's our own blindness. Like these stories have always been there. And I think that's why naturally she's, she's using a word like exhume because these people and stories are all there. Um, It's just whether or not um, we allow them to surface and uh, become a part of our consciousness. All right, we should end there. Again, I Am Not Your Negro is currently playing at Film Scene and will continue to play throughout the weekend and all next week. For a complete list of showtimes, check out icfilmscene.org. Before we move on to our third film, let's check on the weather. It is currently fair and 45 degrees in Iowa City. Tonight, decreasing clouds with a low of only 19 degrees. Tomorrow, Friday, sunny, a high of only 30 degrees. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. Our third and final film is Julieta. Spencer, I'm curious to hear what you thought of Pedro Almodovar's new film. All right, so Julieta from acclaimed director Pedro Almodovar is a return to form of sorts following... 2013's wonky airplane comedy, I'm So Excited, and 2011's ice-cold gender-bender thriller, The Skin I Live In, Julieta sees Almodovar return to the realm of films like All About My Mother and Volver, films which celebrate and explore the complexities of women across generations. Julieta, based off of short stories from the book Runaway by Alice Munro, is a quiet film with hardly a trace of the punk rock sensibilities of Almodovar's earlier works, such as Pepe, Lucy, and Baum, and Labyrinth of Passion. As such, Julieta is a film of quiet anger, a bald fist rather than a shattering window. Characters constantly refuse to say what they really mean, betray the ones who love them the most, and seek forgiveness when forgiveness feels a bit too late. The story centers around our titular character as she wrestles with past tensions involving her estranged daughter, who we come to know as a young woman in an elongated flashback, which takes up most of the runtime of this film. In her youth, Julieta meets a handsome fisherman named Zone, I think was... Schwan. 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 (laughs) They meet on a train, and then they immediately fall head over heels for each other as they are brought together by the death of... Say it again. Juan. Juan's ill wife. Things sort of begin to tear at the seams. Julieta has a baby and discovers that her father is having an affair with a younger woman hired to help her bedridden mother. Then another bomb is dropped and Julieta struggles to keep her head above the water. In this tumultuous period of her life, Julieta's daughter, Anita, grows alongside a friend she made at camp and then up and leaves her mother's life entirely. The rest of the film is dedicated to Julieta as she sorts through her memory for any reason as to why her daughter abandoned her. The film is gorgeously shot, which goes without saying. This is an Almodovar film, after all. Primary colors and incredible fashion populate the film as characters all their own. But Almodovar's penchant for writing strong, multifaceted, and emotionally complex female characters is what keeps me interested. And this is certainly the case here. Um, although not as strong as Volver or All About My Mother, in my opinion, Julieta appears to be cut from the same cloth as those earlier films and leave me anxious to see what he will do next now that he has redeemed himself in my eyes after the abysmal misfire. I'm so excited. Um, what did you guys think? I didn't like this film at all. I mean, for <laughs> at uh, all? It was okay, but it was so mediocre. Did you it- like it better than I'm so excited? Yes, it okay. is better than that. But like you, I mean, you you expect you expect. I'm so excited from Amadova because like he's wonky at times, right? <laughs> like just can like, I just say I've never even heard of. I'm so excited. This is the first I'm hearing of this film. It's not really. Yeah, I didn't. It's basically I, I don't even like anything a bunch like... of people having sex on a plane. Well, good for them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's why it is so turbulence. It, yeah, <laughs> turbulence. Uh, so uh, I mean, the force the libidinal force and the sexual sexuality that Amadova is so good at uh, exacerbating just does not appear here. Like, I think, what? No, I'm sorry. Make it, yes. Continue. Yeah, yeah, because you are making that face. <laughs> I was just like... see your face on all, the radio. I can, all I can picture right now is this the sex scene on the train, but continue. There's no sexiness in this film. No, no, no. I mean... <laughs> Like, the sex scenes in this film are so ordinary by Amadova's own standards, okay? 
Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, like, that is... They're still way above average sexy, though, for a movie, I think. But we are judging by Amadova's own filmography, right? That's so, true, that's true. We are not talking... Of course, we are not comparing Amadova with, like, an ordinary Hollywood director. <laughs> uh, so, I'm in that sense, I mean, what I see here is, yes, a melodrama. A melodrama that is almost too quiet for me to see its force because some usually the thing I like about Amadova is the tint well not the tint but a splash of deviousness in all characters right like characters are not straightforward and they are uh, devilish in that sense so I like how he portrays all of his devious characters but in that film uh, in this film Julieta almost all the characters are just like um, normal people, which which is usually not the case uh, throughout his entire career. So that's why I'm uh, I feel a little bit cold about um, this film in general. That's so funny because I went into this film with um, fairly low expectations. Um, this is not going to come as any surprise. Like I think these films are gorgeous and sumptuous, but they never make any sense to me. Um, and in fact, partly, I keep thinking back to talk to her. Um, mm-hmm. That's all Madova, right? I'm yeah. not like confusing mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Okay. So ever since that film, um, which the scene, the, ascent, the like non-consensual s- sex scene uh-huh. um, in the hospital, like bothered me so much that I've really bristled at, Almodovar since like I just kind of can't make heads or tails over how to feel about this libidinal power as you <laughs> discuss it, Chang Min. Um, so this film, because everybody was so essentially normal, like kind of vanilla mainstream, like all of their motivations essentially seem to like make mainstream narrative sense to me. Um, I was really drawn into it, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I I see why this is a mystery, and like. I, you know, I don't know. I could identify with Julieta. I felt like I could even identify with the daughter. Like, I I like this film way more than I thought I was going to like it. Um, so Almodovar has always been interested in exploring the mother character. And considering his other works, what do we think draws him to this character, this maternal character? And then how does Julieta fall into his canon of interesting and slightly damaged maternal figures? Um... What draws him to the character of the mother? That seems to be a biographical question. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just like... (laughs) I guess just like based on sort of like his filmography, it seems that there's always a very strong maternal presence in the film. um, I'm thinking, especially like in Volver or even like All About My Mother. There's like, there's a looming maternal energy that sort of hangs over every other character in the film he Uh, seems to understand instinctively that like where the women are at is where the interesting things are happening right Mm -hmm. but i feel like the the narratives always sort of center around some kind of like maternal figure in the sense excluding like films like the skin i live in which is just like straight up genre stupidity but like um, I love that film, though. Oh, I hate that film. <laughs> we are like... all over the map with his body of work here. <laughs> I guess. Um, I guess it's sort of they all seem to. They're all so multifaceted. All the mother figures that Almodovar has sort of crafted are all so multifaceted, and they all sort of have these secrets, and they all there always seems to be something bubbling up underneath. That sometimes there's like a cathartic release, and then other times it's just like. Not, but we're left to sort of ponder sort of like the construction of the mother in a lot of his films. Um, so I'm just wondering, how do you see Julieta fitting into sort of, I guess, the canon of other mothers in his movie? I mean, I think to some degree, right, all of um, Hollywood cinema always had these like mothers and then like whores essentially, right? Like women were always mm-hmm. kind of like femme fatales or like virgins and the bible right like this isn't like new (laughs) stuff um i just think that whenever you work in what we often refer to as melodrama but just putting women at the center of the film you're going to end up then with these kinds of characters mother characters and women having sex and making decisions around 
who they're having sex with or not, and whether or not they can make those decisions. Because, of course, with women, they don't always have the kind of agency that you can just assume a male character might have. Um, and it makes the films richer and more interesting for it. I don't... Yeah. I think, like, <laughs> in general, you can see that all, like, all of, like, um, Amadova's mother figures deep down, like, have that tint of Mrs. Bates from Psycho, right? Like, oh, like, like I, I think, I, yeah, I, I think, like, the maternal presence in Amadova's films is always a little bit sadistic. Like, it is caring, but also sadistic. I think it is part of uh, the Spanish culture, especially, like, uh, or, like, because the mothers have to be so strong that at um, most of the times they are at the verge of uh, a mental breakdown, right? So, like, uh, in that sense, you see that uh, how Amadova trying to uh, trace that kind of cracks, um through, for example, uh, an account of uh, the mother's personal history, which uh, is what we see in Julieta. So I think uh, in that sense, you say, I mean, maternal presence, yes, but like at the same time, one thing very peculiar about Amodova is that this maternal presence is very, very sexualized. Right, like we, mm-hmm. I think this is not the case for most films because usually, uh, the mother is represented as this pure, uh, virgin-like figure. So, like it, it can provide a center of unity. But usually, uh, mothers in Amadova's films are divisive. Like they sort of drive the plot forward. They uh, create confrontations, etc. So, like I mean, in that sense, you have to appreciate um, Amadova's uh, experiments on all these different mother figures, even in Julieta. Yeah, I think you're totally right on. Like it's not as simple as I was making it out to be, and. And if it were just melodrama, we'd be seeing these mothers make like all kinds of self-sacrifice, which mm-hmm. in Elmadovar is not very. <laughs> That's frequent. sacrifice our daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Sacrificing their own children. Um, let's take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, we'll continue our discussion of Julieta. Support for KRUI is brought to you in part by The Broken Spoke. They offer new and used bicycles, cycling accessories, and also service all kinds of bikes. They can be found in Iowa City at their new address, 757 South Gilbert Street. For more information, visit thebrokenspoke.com or call 319-338-8900. Welcome back to BG Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at a film scene. We are currently discussing Julieta and Spencer. Do you have another question for us? I do. So all of the men in this film are cheaters. um, (laughs) And I'm cool with that. And not cool that they're cheaters, but I'm sort of cool in this depiction of men being sidelined in a film for once. Um, but I couldn't help but, I guess, want to know more. And I guess I'll tie this into the other question I had into sort of just one since we're running short on time. But I was left wanting to know more about the daughter-father relationship in this film. But then also there's this lingering... The lingering effects of guilt also proved to be particularly devastating in this film. The women seem to judge themselves based on the damaging decisions made by the men in their lives. And sort of, like the guilt of walking out of a room after an argument and then something happening that you can you can't really sort of fix you know um i don't want to drop any spoilers but um yeah the men seem to just leave the women to sort of pick up the pieces after they've left or after they've sort of abandoned their own wives um but do we see this guilt maybe manifest in other ways as well the guilt in the men or the guilt in the women? The women. Yeah, because I think you're right, unless I'm about to disagree with myself five minutes from now. Um, <laughs> that the men are, the, like Julieta's father and um, her husband, I guess, or the father of her child, uh, sh- they both like make decisions and then don't seem to have to, even if they had some reservations about the decisions they made, their emotions seem really 
like at peace or disconnected or I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But the, but whereas the women are just, yeah, like really living in a constant state of suffering and ambiguity. Um, I would basically uh, okay. agree with what you said then. <laughs> okay. Uh, first thing, I like looking at all the men in Amorova's films because they are all great Latino stars. Uh, but Agreed. <laughs> yeah, but like I think the good thing about all these characters is that um, they are very much like cardboard cutouts. Like they they don't they don't really have any kind of narrative function in Amorova's film. Even in the skin I live in, like uh, I think I forgot the uh, the name of the actor. Oh, it's Banderas. Right, Antonio. Antonio. Antonio Banderas. Yeah, yeah, Antonio Banderas, and like in that film, he's just like a stereotypical villain, which is so funny. And like we all we we see is uh, from the perspective of the female protagonist of the film. So, in that sense, like you see how men, like in a sense, have to be uh, stereotyped uh, in any Abordova's film. So, like they can serve as this. Um, beginning point of the narrative, and like, and the, and the, so women have to pick up the pieces afterwards, right? So, I think uh, by setting up this kind of um, usually a sexual dynamic, uh, Amadova is g- giving us a more I don't know colorful look into uh, women's psyche in general. So. Um, I don't know. I don't know about guilt in this film, though, because uh, for most part, uh, I just don't see what Julieta uh, has done wrong, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, well, and I think that's also, I mean, I think that's the most interesting part about her girl is that she really hasn't done anything wrong, and yet she still feels this sort of immense weight and this, like, I guess the sort of responsibility that doesn't, that seems out of her hands and yet she still feels the weight of it constantly. Um, Like she somehow, she thinks that the way that things ended up is like entirely her fault when that's not at all what transpires. Like, yeah, but I mean, she does. So she feels guilt, but her daughter also punishes her. Mm -hmm. So it's like women are walking around with guilt. That's both self-imposed, but then reinforced by other women, even though, no like nobody's at fault (laughs) um and everyone should let it go the way that these like cardboard men have but they can't uh, because they're super um i was gonna say superhuman but that would be the opposite of being really human (laughs) (laughs) that's a a tricky one also also i think that that kind of guilt immaterial guilt is from like in that sense i would say spain's uh catholic culture Mm-hmm. So like you you do see that that kind of a uh, guilt coming out of nowhere in many Avodova's films and people do feel about it. So I think that that uh, that dimension of the film has to um, be coupled with a cultural context reading here. I think that that would be fair to say. Yeah. Um, I I just want to say that. When this film started, I thought to myself, oh, this really reminds me of Patricia Highsmith, having just read um, uh-huh. Strangers on a Train for the first time. Um, and lo and behold, a character in the third act says, I feel like I'm in a Patricia Highsmith novel. And I was like, <laughs> I'm so smart. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I also think that the first scene s- set up some sort of false expectation for me. Like, usually... When you say some, when you see somebody uh, do things so meticulously, you feel like they are, they want to like prepare for a murder, especially in like Amadova's films. Like mm-hmm. you just feel like, oh, they are doing this so carefully, so fastidiously. Bless Something that. is about to happen. Well, I know that's actually what I really liked about this film is it worked as a mystery thriller. Like it felt like a Highsmith kind of thriller that is a pretty low, slow burn, um, has more to do with the psychological aspects often than the actual um, events that are taking place. And I was really hooked. Like, I kept wanting to know what would happen next. I was really drawn in by Julieta and um, her, the the young actress that plays her is just 
phenomenal to look at. Um, and I actually wondered what you what you thought of the the switch. There's a switch between actresses that happens um, in the film. So she's played by two different people. And I couldn't decide if, yeah, of course, that's like kind of all part of it. We need to see this like drastic physical change or... I don't know. Was it super necessary that that happened or? It felt pretty seamless to me mm-hmm. as a viewer. I mean, I do think sort of we need that, I guess, time jump to just really get how long she's been carrying this sort of burden. And like, you can see it on her face um, when she's older, sort of like the stress of her entire life is just like carved into it. Um, and so when she's older, it's just like, it's a very you understand why, like, the current boo thing that she has, like, you understand (laughs) why she makes the decisions that she does and sort of, and it doesn't really feel like it comes out of nowhere. All right, I guess we're going to wrap up there with uh, our discussion of Julieta, which, again, opens tomorrow and will continue to play at Film Scene throughout the weekend and all next week. For a complete list of showtimes, check out icfilmscene.org. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and their website, icfilmscene.org, to find this and past episodes of Bijou Banter, including a special edition Spencer and I recorded at True False Film Fest last week. Please check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. All of our episodes are also available on iTunes. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Spencer, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Jungmin, it's a pleasure as always. Likewise. I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter after spring break. Woohoo!